Isaiah 52. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people, has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished as you, at you his appearance was so marred behind, beyond <clears throat> human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see and that which they have not heard, they understand. That is the word of the Lord. Let me pray, and then we'll uh, think about our passage. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for your word, grateful that each Sunday we come expectantly, uh, even to passages that uh, are familiar to us or parts of it are familiar uh, because you're the living God who speaks to us uh, every time we open up the Bible. What a great confidence that is, that we can hear the living God every time we open your word. And so we come expectantly this morning, for some of us after perhaps a difficult week, for some of us after a fairly good week, uh, but we come uh, still needing you to speak into our lives, to direct us, to encourage us, to shape us. And so do so, uh, we pray right now, through the power of your Holy Spirit, but we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The delightful and classic 1987 romantic comedy, uh, The Princess Bride, has so many memorable moments and lines, but one that many of you may recall concerns uh, the swordsman Inigo Montoya. It's not the line for which he is best remembered. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. I had to include that so I could say it. 
Rather, it's after the Sicilian boss, Vizzini, who has repeatedly described unfolding events as inconceivable, when he attempts to cut a rope, the dread pirate Roberts is climbing up, yells out that it was inconceivable that the pirate did not fall to this, Montoya replied, replied, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> That's the end of my impersonations today. But I say that because when you and I use the word gospel, it's worth asking ourselves, does this word mean what I think it means? It's interesting that the Greek word translated gospel doesn't appear on the world stage for the first time through the New Testament. For example, there's an inscription found in a government building in Prien in modern-day Turkey that dates from 9th century BC and refers to Caesar Augustus with these words, the birthday of the god Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel concerning him. The gospel of Caesar Augustus was what we call today the Pax Romana, the age of peace in the Roman Empire, which came about during this time, the time into which Jesus was born. And our launching question in this series is this. Given the word's usage in the wider culture, and given that he didn't have the four gospels in front of him as he wrote, what was the, the Apostle Paul's primary reference point in, in understanding the gospel of which he wrote. Last Sunday, I presented the proposal that when, when Paul in his letters referred to the gospel, that his primary reference point was in fact the gospel according to Isaiah. And that's because of all the Old Testament writers. It's Isaiah who uses the language of gospel of good news more than any other. He does so in five places and in this Advent, sermon series, we're looking at three of those places. We come to the second of those three today in Isaiah 52, verse 7, where we read this, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So here's what I hope we're going to, to see today as we look at uh, 52 and chapter 53. The, the, the good news here is that God reigns, a reign that has been consummated or completed through the servant. We're going to think about the passage through three commands that come up in these chapters. First of all, wake up to the new reality. Secondly, sing for joy at the good news. And thirdly, behold the substitute servant. First then, wake up to the new realities. We saw last week uh, while the first half of the book of Isaiah deals with the historical realities of the 8th century BC uh, for life for Israel and Judah and God's judgment on them through the Assyrians, the second half of the book, starting in chapter 40, provides for them a, a view of the future. And it's as if the prophet Isaiah had been lifted up into the heavenly court with God and shown what lies ahead for the people of Judah. And specifically, there's exile in Babylon, but then there will be a return from Babylon when God himself will comfort the people with the assurance that he will lead them home as their shepherd king. And as we come to chapters 51 and 52, there's a, there's a clear sense that the people haven't really woken up to this new reality that has been promised to them by God. Twice in relatively close succession, the prophet seeks to shake them out of their spiritual doziness. Look at chapter 51, verse 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. 
You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. People of, of Jerusalem had drunk the cup of God's wrath. That is, they had suffered God's punishment upon them for their sin. Punishment meted out through the invasion of the Assyrians and then their, their Babylonians and then their subsequent captivity. Chapter 51, verse 21, Isaiah calls them drunk but not with wine. They've become disoriented. They're punch drunk, as it were. They're not thinking straight. Isaiah tries to snap them out of the stupor by reminding them that God has already intervened on their behalf. Verses 21 to 22, therefore hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. Wake up to what God has delivered you from, Isaiah is saying. And then at the beginning of chapter 52, where Lorenz's reading started, there's a second call to wake up. Wake up to what God has gifted to you. Look at those verses, verses 1 and 2. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. That God has, had actually provided his people now with strength and beauty, but they need to actually themselves put those things on. That instead of now being in exile, God has invited them to be enthroned freed from the yoke of slavery, re-adopted into his family. But again, they need to raise themselves from their slumber to assume all these privileges for themselves that are rightfully theirs. But what we haven't been given in these two calls to wake up is how these new realities have actually been secured. How exactly has God been able to deliver them from exile? And how has he been able to secure for them these privileges? Verse 3 gives us a little bit of a teaser as to the answer to that question. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. It's almost as if he just throws in a little bonus good news here that the community of God's people, whom God calls his own, is open to anyone and everyone alike because you can't pay your way into this community. God refuses every penny of our own self-righteous moral currency. That no one here in this room this morning has the form of payment that God has the slightest interest in. Redemption is going to have to come by some other means. But still we have to wait to hear from Isaiah what that is. In the meantime, there is just this command to wake up to this new reality. But it's at that point that there is an announcement. There's a message. A message which Isaiah tells us will give reason to sing for joy. 1731, Johann Sebastian Bach wrote a cantata entitled in German, Wacht auf. We know it in English as Sleepers Awake. When the cantata was first performed in a church, the gospel reading that day was from Matthew 25, the, the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins. You may recall five of the virgins in that parable that Jesus told were ready for the bridegroom's arrival, while the five others fell asleep and were excluded from the marriage feast. Bach was saying through his cantata, Christ is coming, get ready. Well, Isaiah's message here is a similar one to his audience, to wake up, to get ready. But for them, it is to get ready firstly for a messenger. Look at verse 7 again. 
How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, it's not often that you find in the Bible, or actually anywhere else for that matter, words in praise of feet. So I was thinking about this. It reminded me of an Instagram account that's out there called Preachers and Sneakers, which highlights the shoe-spending habits of various preachers in this country. Uh, here's an example of some nice sneakers that cost this preacher over $1,000. There are other posts of shoes worn on this site by pastors in the $5,000 range. I want to assure you I have not appeared on this Instagram account in any figment of the imagination. But maybe it's kind of a misinterpretation of this verse. How, be how beautiful upon the stage are the sneakers of those who bring good news. But, but sticking to the actual words in Isaiah, frankly, words in praise of feet just feel a little funny. Not to go too TMI on you, but as I get older, it's my feet that seem to take more care and attention than the rest of my body. But if you think back to Isaiah's day, it, even, it sounds even more absurd. I mean, towns back then lacked sewers. Donkeys and horses rode around through the town such that the streets just ran with excrement, which meant that you couldn't avoid your feet getting dirty, filthy. Imagine what it was like to have people come in off the street to your house or to have to wash someone's feet in that context. And all of which is to say that the language here, it would seem, is intended to be poetic imagery, not per se in praise of feet. The feet are beautiful because of the news that they bring. Isaiah is declaring, what a welcome sound is the footfall of a runner bringing good news. Think of the legendary run commemorated by Marathons even to this day of the messenger called Pheidippides from Marathon to Athens to tell the, the Athenians that their army had defeated the Persians. Or bringing it right up to today. Picture in your mind a family in a hospital waiting room while their loved one is having significant surgery. And after hours of waiting, the surgeon emerges through the door and she walks over to the family and says, the surgery went really well, he's going to be fine. And they just want to hug him. Beautiful feet because of beautiful news. That's the sense of what is being reported here. But what's the beautiful message here of this messenger? Well, in the context of the passage, it seems to be news of how a city's army has been faring and that the battle has been won. Isaiah describes it as good news of peace, good news of happiness, salvation, that our God reigns. The waiting people here in the city sense a buzz of excitement from the city walls as the messenger is, is sighted, and then marvelously this initial buzz becomes a unison song of joy because it's, it's not just the messenger they see. Phrase in verse 8, for eye to eye has the meaning of absolute clarity, seeing with 20-20 vision, so that what we're told here is that there's no mistaking what they see on the heels of this messenger. It is the Lord himself. It is the Lord himself coming back to Zion, the Lord who is victorious, the Lord who reigns. And that's the catalyst for the call in verse 9 to break into songs of joy. Here is good news of peace, of happiness, of salvation, that God is victorious, and here comes the victorious Lord himself, something definitely worth singing about. And yet still, there is this sense that Isaiah has been skillfully developing the narrative such that he, hasn't, he still hasn't given us all the details. 
So he said, you know, wake up to this new reality, but I haven't exactly explained how this new reality is going to come about. And sing for joy at the good news of the victorious warrior God who has secured your salvation, but I haven't actually yet given you an actual description of the warrior. But it's at this point that Isaiah stuns his audience as he fills in the blanks because it's not what they would have been expecting at all. Verses 10 to 12, Isaiah describes how the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, how all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of the Lord, how the Lord will go both before his people and be their rear guard. And then, and then in verse 13, Isaiah gives the answer for how God is going to do all of this as he says, Behold my servant. Behold my servant. This servant who had been introduced by Isaiah back in chapter 42, who reappears in chapter 49, chapter 50, now is presented as the one who is the key to unlock all the promises that God has made in these chapters. What follows then from chapter 52, verse 13, to chapter 53, verse 12 is known as the fourth of Isaiah's songs of the servant. It's the best known of the servant songs. Some would say it's the the jewel and the crown of the whole book of Isaiah. All of the servant songs lay out at some level that this coming servant sent by God will suffer. But it's in this final song in chapters 52 and 53 that the unfathomable debt of the suffering that the 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 servant will undergo is revealed. And that's the bombshell that everything has led up to this point. That there's going to be a new reality that will bring peace and it will bring happiness and it will bring salvation. It will bring the victorious Lord's reign, but it's all wrapped up in a suffering servant. And this would be no ordinary suffering. There are five stanzas or verses in this song. We don't have time to read through the entire song this morning, but we could summarize it through three V's, that first of all, the servant will be on the receiving end of great violence. And secondly, however, he volunteered to bear that violence. And thirdly, the purpose of his volunteering to bear this violence was vicarious. That is, his suffering would be in the place of others. Violence, volunteered, vicarious. And it's that third V, Vicarious, that is at the heart of this whole song, in the middle stanza of chapter 53, verses 4 to 6, as Isaiah is going to highlight this servant as a substitute. So that under our, la- our third point in this sermon, behold the substitute ser- servant, we're actually going to have three subpoints. Some of you think that's just a cheeky way of me making this into two sermons, but I promise you we'll keep it at the same length. But three subpoints. First of all, our need for a substitute, secondly, the act of the substitute, and thirdly, our response to the substitute. So what, why, what's the need for this substitute? Look at verse 6, which will be familiar to some of you as it's the basis of one of our favorite kid songs that we've done around here for a while. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That was a little slow, but I'll let you off with it. Sin, the sin of which Israel was guilty and for which they had been punished with exile, it turns out, was not in any way unique to them. Isaiah says it's the condition of all of us. 
that we've all gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. Verse 5, the previous verse, describes our sin in terms of transgressions and, and our iniquities, that we've broken God's laws. We've fallen into idolatry. That is, we've made other things more important in our lives than God. We are by nature and our actions guilty before God, every single one of us. This is where some of us perhaps get a little bit defensive or maybe even annoyed because we're not quite sure why preachers have to keep on making such a big deal about sin. We say, sure, none of us is perfect, but God understands. The French Enlightenment writer Voltaire said, it's his job to forgive, so let's, not, let's just not make such a big deal about it all the time. It really does a number my sense of self-esteem to be told that I should think of myself at this fundamental level as a sinner. So what are we to make of that? Is that just, you know, preachers going overboard? I don't think so. I told this story before, but it's worth repeating at least one more time. A few years ago, I heard uh, the story of a teacher in Northern Ireland uh, wanting to find a way to explain the seriousness of sin uh, to her class. She just graduated from teaching college. She was teaching at a secondary level uh, school in Belfast, but as the one at the bottom of the teaching ladder, she was given as her prize the religious education class for 13 to 14 year old boys. And she didn't find that very easy, as you can imagine, being only in her early 20s herself. So what was she to do? Well, after several weeks of serious torment, she decided she would try a different tact. So one day she came in with a bag of flour and some salt and some water, and she announced to the class they're going to do, they were going to do something a little different. They were going to create a world. And so they put desks together so they could work together. And the first step was they made these little figures out of plaster of Paris. They could make them however they wanted them to look. And these boys being 13 to 14, as expected, some of the figures were a little obscene, but she didn't interfere. She just told them, make your figures however you want. And then she took them home that night. She baked them overnight, brought them back the next day, asked the class, okay, I want you to paint them. I want you to dress them. I want you to give them names, give them the start of a story write a description of who they are, what they're like, personality. She brought them together in these tables working in groups of three and four. They started to build little communities. She'd have them introduce houses and roads and cars, maybe a little lake over here, trees and gardens. A couple of weeks went by. She said, okay, don't you think we should have some rules for these little people? What would, what would be some good rules for, I mean, they're pretty small. What do you think? And the boys are really starting to get into it now. It's like, don't jump in the lake, you might dissolve, or don't get too close to the edge, you'll fall and smash into tiny, tiny little pieces. So the teacher put all these rules down. By the end, they had about 30 rules. So she said, you know, that's a lot of rules for the little critters like these. Maybe we could just simplify it a bit. So one boy put his hand up and, and said, how about this, always do everything I tell you. She said, that's a pretty good summary. Well, well, why don't we go with that? So the experiment went on for a few more days. And then she said to them, what would happen if one of these little critters looked up at you and said, get out of my life. This is my world. What right do you think you have to tell me what to do? If I want to go swimming in the lake, I'm going to go swimming in the lake. You don't have the right to tell me what to do. You're, you're just a big bully. And she kind of went on and on like this until one of the boys had had enough and yelled, if one of them said that to me, I'd break his flipping leg. Except he a little more colorful in his language, but you see the boys were, were getting it. They understood that sin is serious, not because it's merely the breaking of this rule here 
or that rule there. Sin is defiance to the God who made us, the God who's done everything for us, the God who's given us everything that we need. Sin is going astray, going our own way, building your life on anything other than God. It's to tell God to clear off that we want to be the God of our lives. So as the late John Stott put it, the essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. The Bible says it's this attitude of, of defiance that has led to every other problem in our lives, a world of drastic alienation. We're alienated from each other. We're alienated from the created world we live in. We're alienated from ourselves, all because we have alienated ourselves from God. And that all clearly shows that we have a need. And what the Bible says we have a need for is a substitute who will stand in for us and take the punishment, the penalty that we deserve for having substituted ourselves for God so that in order that we then could might be forgiven and restored into a relationship with the God who created us and sustains us. For not to be punished, we need a substitute to take that punishment for us. Now, Isaiah is not the first person in the Bible to kind of run with this idea of substitution. The idea of substitution runs all the way from the Garden of Eden, the Passover, to the sacrifices found in the book of Leviticus. But the problem with all of those substitutions is that the substitutes were animals, and therein lay the problem, because the New Testament tells us that the blood of an animal could never fully pay for the sin of men and women. A true substitute for humans would have to be another human, but not any old human. It would have to be a perfect human who didn't have any of their own sin that needed to be atoned for. Well, we come to Isaiah 53, and it appears that God has had in mind someone who could satisfy our need for a substitute. It is this servant. It is the one of whom we're told in verse 9, chapter 53, that he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. In his sinlessness, this servant qualified as our substitute. But our need, however, was not just for someone who had the necessary qualifications to be our substitute. It was someone who would actually act as our substitute. God's ushering in of a new reality for his people, for us, the fulfillment of, of, of the good news of peace and happiness, of salvation dependent on the qualified substitute actually substituting himself for us. And Isaiah 53 tells us that's exactly what this sub substitute servant would do. Isaiah is so certain that he would do it that you'll notice he writes all of this in the past tense. So secure is he in the understanding that it's going to happen as if it's already happened. So verses 4 to 5 Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Verse 12, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Verse 6, after the first part that we looked at already, picks up the same theme. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. So that here's how John Stott then finishes that earlier quote. The essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. That we put ourselves where only God deserves to be, and God puts himself where we deserve to be. Isn't that glorious? The substitution involves this exchange. So he took our pain. He bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So that the sin is ours, the pain and the punishment and the iniquity are all ours. And this servant takes it. He takes it all. Or should I say, Jesus took it. Jesus paid it all because, of course, this is where it was all pointing. The New Testament is unanimous in its recognition that the substitute Savior is Jesus. That on the cross, he bore our sin so that we don't have to. He lost the Father so we don't have to. He suffered hell so that we don't have to. That to usher in this new reality, to bring the good news of peace and happiness and salvation, to consummate the reign of God, Jesus came to be our substitute. At the very heart of the gospel is this substitution. I mean, so much so is it at the heart that the New Testament writer's perspective is that if you were to strip Christianity of this concept of substitution, you don't have any Christianity left. There's no good news if there's no substitution. It's the central reason why Jesus came into this world. Please don't ever think that Jesus' death just kind of served as some sort of example, as a sign of how much he loved us. That actually makes his death pointless, even stupid. Think about it this way, ladies. Imagine when you were a bit younger and you go into Philadelphia on a date with your boyfriend, having a romantic walk along... Uh, Penn's Landing, along the river at Penn's Landing with your boyfriend, but your boyfriend can't swim. But he turns to you, he looks into your eyes, and he says, darling, buttercup, some of you have heard this before, let, let me show you how much I love you. And he jumps in the river and he drowns. Now, what are you going to make of that? Well, you're going to think to yourself, well, I'm glad I'm rid of him, he was an idiot. I mean, how, how did that show you that he loved you? would have been very different if you'd actually been in the river and you couldn't swim and he died in to, dived in to rescue you, pushed you to safety, but as he pushed you to safety, he was drawn under by the current and he drowned. Then you would have responded, oh my goodness, how he loved me. But just to kill himself didn't show any love at all, just showed stupidity. And the cross is only good news for us if Jesus actually achieved something there on our behalf and praise God he did. Isaiah says he achieved peace for us. And he achieved happiness for us. And he achieved salvation for us. So lastly, what's, what's your response to this substitution? I'd be willing to guess that until you really see that Jesus came as your substitute to take this penalty in your place, until then, Jesus will at best be only of secondary interest and importance in your life. If Jesus is no more than just an example to you, then you'll sort of just put him on the mantelpiece with all the other examples you have in your life. The God you believe in just loves you like he just loves kind of nonchalantly everybody. If it didn't cost your God anything 
to, to love you, then Jesus will be of peripheral interest and concern to you. The Welsh preacher Martin Lord-Jones illustrated the issue this way. He said, imagine, imagine you get home one day and your friend is at the front door and as she sees you, she said, oh, by the way, there was someone here earlier looking for you. He had a bill for you, uh, but I paid it. Don't worry, you don't need to pay me back. Well, how grateful are you going to be for that? Well, it all depends on the size of the bill, right? Maybe it was just a postage due bill. Or maybe it was your utility bill for the month. Or maybe it was someone from the IRS with a bill for back taxes for the last 10 years. That until you know whether it was a dollar or $100 or $10,000, you don't know whether to shake your friend's hand or kiss her feet. Many people today talk about the love of God, but I'm, I'm not sure how, we, how many of us realize the sheer immensity of that love. The immensity of a love that would send his only son as a substitute servant for sinners. Because if you just think, that, well, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm really not that bad. And it's really... You know, he just has to clean up a little bit here, over here, the bad bits. It's really not going to change your life that much. Or if you, if you, or when you think of sin, you only think of those times where you've really blown it. Like you've yelled at your spouse or your kids or you've done some shady things at work. You think, well, Jesus just deals with those things. You'll be a little bit more grateful, but it, it's not going to revolutionize your life. But if you stand under the cross and you look up at Jesus and you grasp that Jesus is there instead of you, that you should be there, that you should be pierced for your transgressions, that you should be crushed for your iniquity, that the Lord should be laying your guilt and your sin on you, but Jesus is there taking it. It changes everything. Because that love changes everything. It changes how you view yourself, because at the most fundamental level, you know that, yes, you've been created in the image of God, but you are a sinner saved only by the grace of God through Jesus. It changes how you relate to God you, because you know you owe him everything. And it changes how you relate to other people. Because if Jesus had to die for you as well as for everyone else, it sort of levels the playing field, doesn't it? And there's no, you have no basis upon which to feel superior to other people. And if Jesus was glad to die for you, because of his love for you, then you get all your identity out of that. You're loved, you're delighted in by the God of this universe so that you no longer need to try to find your identity in what other people think of you. It changes how you think about your time, about your money, about your possessions, your relationships, all because of seeing that Jesus is your substitute. How beautiful, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, and who says to us, your God reigns. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you for what you were willing to do for us. That you were willing to be a victim to violence voluntarily, but vicariously standing in our place for what we deserved so that we might be forgiven, redeemed, restored. Here is the gospel. Here is the good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who brought that news to us in the past. We pray that we would take up that mantle, as it were, and that our feet would be described as beautiful as we share that with others, 
as the Apostle Paul says, that we would continue to spread this glorious good news of a substitute servant. We pray all this in his name. Amen.